appreciate that. Stephanie, thank you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you would, this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. First and 2 Corinthians are amazing books. And uh, there is so much truth and so much help to be found in these books. Um, and you could point to any, <laughs> any of Paul's writings, really, and uh, you can be stirred just reading through some of these things. But First and 2 Corinthians really uh, provide practical uh, help as well as a, a wealth of really where we pull a lot of doctrines from. And uh, they are tremendous, uh, tremendous books for learning. You're wanting to grow deeper in your relationship with God, dive into First and 2 Corinthians, and uh, you'll learn about... Uh, you'll learn about uh, different doctrines of salvation and uh, separation and uh, doctrines of mora- things about morality and uh, how the church ought to handle itself, how the individual Christian ought to handle it- themselves. And, and so there's a lot of practical help uh, in the books of First and Second Corinthians. In, first, or in Second Corinthians chapter 7, however, I want to bring us through a, a little bit of this passage. It's only 16 verses long. It's a short book, really. But uh, there are some tremendous truths in here, and uh, truths that will help us really in a profound way. If you look, and what we're going to do is a little bit of uh, line by line, precept upon precept. All right, we're just going to go through the first few verses here. We'll read the verse and give a little bit of a brief explanation of what's going on, and we'll move our way uh, through into the middle of the passage where we'll kind of stop for the message this evening. In verse number one, it says, "Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved." Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And uh, what Paul is doing is he's uh, opening up chapter 7, referencing chapter 6. Chapter 6, he had just addressed all the need for separation. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. And so he deals with all this, the, the need for separation in the church, which is critical. It's critical for our growth. It's critical for our witness. And a lot of times we don't like to view it as such, but it is. We need to be a light. We need to be salt. And if the salt had lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? All right? So we have to be distinct. And, and Paul opens up chapter 7 by saying, Having therefore these promises, dear beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. So he's given us all the things we need to do. And then in chapter 7 he's saying, We have so many promises that come from having a right walk with God. There's a benefit to following through with all these things the Lord's instructing us to do. And so he opens up chapter 7 with some, uh, some benefits, benefits of being holy as he is holy. All right? Verse number 2, he says, Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. And so here he comes with some instruction to the church saying, Hey, listen to what we're saying. Listen to what we're saying. And really, this is, the, this is the heart of a pastor is what he's giving to his people. He's saying, receive us. Listen to us. Don't, don't turn yourself off. We haven't. He, he says it right there. We have not wronged you. Nothing we've said or instructed you in was wrong. We haven't done anything that was sinful. He says right there, we have not corrupted any man, no man. There's nothing that I've instructed you to do that was against God's word. And, and he, he's very clear. Uh, I, we have not corrupted you. And he says, we have not defrauded any man. He said, we're not in this for ourselves. We're not in this for our gain. Uh, I'm not trying to t- just give you a lie to manipulate you. He said, the instruction that I'm giving to you is from the heart of a pastor. And this is such a critical truth. So often we can look at our pastor and not like the way he says something or the, way, uh, the truth in which he's <laughs> saying. And it can offend us. 
And Paul's reminding the church of Corinth, hey, receive us. Receive us. We've got something for you, and we have not done anything against the Word of God. In fact, we've only tried to teach you to be closer to the Lord and, and, and grow in your relationship with Him, so receive us. So it's an admonition to the church of Corinth. Don't turn yourself off. Don't turn yourself off. Verse number 3 and verse number 4, it says, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. He's saying the things that I'm, I'm giving to you, verse number three, the, the truths that I'm telling you, they're not to condemn, uh, as in, uh, he is definitely rebuking them. Let me be clear. In, in 1 Corinthians, he's giving them instruction. He's rebuking them. In 2 Corinthians, the same thing. But he's saying, this is not us saying this out of hatred or a condemnation because we don't like you. The instruction that I'm giving to you is not for you uh, to make your life more difficult. And he even goes on to explain here, that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. This is, again, the heart of a pastor. The instruction that a pastor gives, and as our pastor stands behind the pulpit, you can, you can tell and you can see and you can understand if you've got any kind of perception that the instruction he gives to us is not because he's trying to make our lives more difficult. It's not because he wants us to be miserable in the Christian life. It's not because he wants to make it hard on us. It's because, as a pastor, he has been given a heart for his people. And that's what Paul is saying. You are in our hearts to live or to die. We, we, we eat, drink, and breathe you. That's what, that's what this is all about, the heart of a pastor. Verse number 4 says, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Not only does, is he saying, I love you, he's saying, I'm proud of you. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all your tribulations. Say, I'm so proud of you. You've been through a lot. You've come through and and you're doing well. I'm so proud of you. I love you and I'm proud of you. (coughs) Verse number five. He says, for when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled in every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. He's saying to the church of Corinth, now keep in mind, Paul's not, Paul is not in Corinth when he's talking to them. He wrote the letter. He's actually in Macedonia. He's saying, I'm not even close. I'm not near you. I'm in Macedonia. And here in Macedonia, there's, there, is, there is fightings without. What he's referencing is the Gentiles and the Jews attacking the Christians, not wanting the gospel to be spread. And so he's saying there's fightings without. And within their spheres, he's saying, even at the church here. <coughs> even in the church here in Macedonia, there is fears. They're afraid of what the Jews and the Gentiles are trying to do, how they're fighting against the gospel. So Paul is saying, I've come here, I'm in Macedonia, and I'm thinking about you over there. I'm thinking about all the instructions I've given to you. Like, all right, so follow me on this recap. I'm thinking about all the instructions I've given to you. I, I, I'm understanding that it may be perceived to be hard to understand. It may come across as though I'm trying to make your life difficult, but I love you and I care for you and I'm proud of you. I'm here in Macedonia and everything is going to pots. But then look at what he says in verse number six. He says, nevertheless, Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus was in Corinth. Titus was there, and, uh, and Titus saw how they responded to his first letter. 
Really, that's what he's referencing here. He's not referencing uh, necessarily everything uh, that is in this book in 2 Corinthians. He's referencing his first letter. And he saw how the church of Corinth responded. Remember, that first book was pretty tough. Remember what we talked about on Sunday? How he's calling them babies? That was 1 Corinthians. He also had to deal with an incestuous relationship inside the church. A difficult thing. He had to deal with sin and some immorality. And so in 1 Corinthians, he really laid it on them hard. And the whole time after he sent that letter, he's worried about their response. And so as he's writing this second letter, and as he's in Macedonia under attack where he's at, physically drained, trying to help that church, he's thinking about Corinth and all the trouble they're going through, wondering how they're receiving his instruction. He says, and in that moment of my physical weakness, I was encouraged once again by you. Verse number six is what he's saying, because Titus came to me from Corinth. And Titus told me how you received the word well. How you took it. And it says here in verse number 7, And not by his coming only, but also but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I should rejoice the more. He said, I was so glad when Titus came. I was kind of discouraged, to be honest with you. And he's being real transparent is what he's saying. I was discouraged. I was in Macedonia. The church was discouraged. There was fightings. There was fears. I was dealing with all this. If you look back, he said, my flesh was weak. I was tired. I was worn out. Pastors get there too. Worn out. And he said, I was discouraged. But then you know know what picked me up? Know what encouraged me? Good news that the people were responding well to the word of God said, Titus came back and, and, he, and he relayed to me that your response to my rebuke and my instruction was mourning. That you had a repentant heart and that you received well the word of God. And not only that, but you had a fervent mind toward me. He said that you still, that you still wanted to hear the truth. Amen. You still wanted to hear from your, your pastor. You still wanted to hear from me, the Apostle Paul. See, that was an encouragement. It just as a side note has really nothing to do with the message, and I didn't even think about it till now, but I bet that's really an encouragement to our pastor when we respond that way with a heart to hear what the Lord lays on his heart for us, even though we don't always like to hear it, even though it's not always comfortable to hear it. It would be an encouragement, I'm sure. It was to Paul. And so Paul encourages them and, and kind of exhorts them and lifts them up and, and, and say, I'm so glad to hear this news that you receive the letter, you receive the rebuke with mourning, with a fervent mind toward me. In verse number eight, a funny verse to me. He says, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Have you ever heard the phrase, sorry, not sorry? That's really what Paul says here. He's like, sorry, not sorry. He's like, I know what I gave to you was hard. And I know what I was, how I was instructing you and rebuking you uh, may have been hard to take and digest. And I was sorry that I said it, but I wasn't really sorry. And really, that's where I want to go with this message tonight. I want to take this little phrase and move forward, the title of the message tonight will be Sorry, Not Sorry. The reason that Paul was sorry but not sorry because that their, their sorriness 
led them to have sorrow. And if you look there in verse number 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For if you were made sorry after a godly manner, <coughs> that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. He's saying, I was sorry. I, had, I felt like I may have come across a little hard. Sometimes I'll say stuff even when I'm preaching or when I'm teaching the teenagers and I'm a lot harder than what I am here. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll say something to them and, and my wife, she says it all, all the time to me because I'll come across real hard on somebody and then I'll be like, I'll backtrack. And she said, why, why, did you, why did you backtrack on that? I said, well, I, just, I didn't want to hurt them. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I, I just wanted to make sure that what... I, and Paul was kind of saying the same thing. He said, I'm sorry that it came across, but it needed to be said. And although I was feeling a little bit rough about how I presented it to you, I, now I don't feel so bad. Because I saw how you responded to it. Paul didn't do anything wrong the way he presented it. Let me just make that clear. Ultimately, what causes us to have the wrong kind of sorrow in our lives is that we're not spiritually prepared for what we've heard. We're not ready to receive, but the church of Corinth, uh, they took it. They received it. And he's saying, I am so glad that you are sorry, but that that sorriness, the I'm sorry, led to sorrow. And not just any kind of sorrow, it led to godly sorrow. There are two different kinds of sorrow. There is worldly sorrow. And in this book, he says that leads to death. A lot of times, that's the kind of sorrow we have when we've done something wrong. The kind of sorrow that, that is, <clears throat> I'm sorry I got caught, or I'm sorry I have these consequences, or I'm sorry that this is happening to me. He's saying there's a godly sorrow. And he, and he says, I'm glad that you got the godly sorrow. I'm glad that the tough message I delivered to you brought about godly sorrow in your lives. I think we would do well as a church today to learn a little bit about godly sorrow. Amen. The reason I say that is because godly sorrow brings about some things in our lives. And he goes to list them here. He goes actually to list eight different things. And so we're going to zoom through these really quick. All right? Father, I pray that you'd be with this message. Be with my voice, Lord. I pray that you'd help me to not be distracting because of it. Lord, I pray that you would help me to deliver this clearly, that it would be instructive to us, Lord, and that we would be better Christians because of it. Father, hide me behind the cross. Don't allow me to say anything I should not say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you look with me here in verse number 10, he says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so sorrow, really, where it begins in our lives is where we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Sorrow is required for salvation. And, and at least I trust that everybody in this room has experienced sorrow, godly sorrow, at least once in your life. Uh, if you've not, then you've not experienced salvation. Right. And he's saying godly sorrow it leadeth to repentance. It leadeth to salvation. Amen. And if you've not experienced that, get it settled. Amen. Hell's not worth yeah. the chance. Your life is not guaranteed. You don't know when this, you'll pass off from this world. Make sure that you know that heaven is your home, that you're settled in it. 
In verse number 11, he says, Behold this selfsame thing. The selfsame thing. What is the selfsame thing? Godly sorrow. He's referencing verse number 10. For behold this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after, the, after a godly sort. Now listen. The first fruit of sorrow. He says, What carefulness. What carefulness it wrought in you. Carefulness. Being careful is to be cautious. To not be, uh, to not be flagrant, to not be um, risk, a risk taker. The thing and the side effect of having sorrow in our lives is that it produces carefulness. And I believe that it's something that as we grow in our walk with God and as we sorrow more over our sin, we become more careful about our sin. He says, as you live your lives and as, you, as godly sorrow is produced in you, you will begin to become more careful in the situations you put yourself in. Right. Isn't that quite an admonition to the church? And the reason I say we need more godly sorrow in our churches today is because we don't have a lot of carefulness. We frequently expose ourselves to sin. We willingly expose ourselves to temptation. We openly discuss it and even joke about it, making a game of it in some cases. And while this may not be a general practice that we would uh, consider ourselves talking about, sit down and watch television for an hour. It's pretty hard to be careful. And the reason I think I need more sorrow in my life and as a church we need more sorrow in our lives is because we are willing to take way more risks with our purity than we should be willing to take. And what that means is that we don't have the godly kind of sorrow that we should have because godly sorrow wrought carefulness in their lives. You don't think it would do the same thing to us? This is an equation. Sorrow equals carefulness. Every single one of these things that we'll go through is a production of what, how we respond to sin. We need more carefulness. We take, we take way too many risks and we allow ourselves to be exposed to way too many temptations. The second thing he says here is, yea, what clearing of yourselves? What clearing of yourselves? To clear something is to empty it out. I picture walking through the woods, a dense forest. I've done it many times, going out hunting and, uh, in bow season, and, and you get out there super early in the morning, and you walk through the woods, you really can't see where you're going, but then you walk out of the woods, maybe into a clearing, and all of a sudden you're exposed to light. We need more clearing of ourselves where we are navigating this world where there's so much junk and there's so much filth uh, it, we're exposed to because we're not as careful as we should be. And while we allow ourselves to be bombarded and we allow it, whether we want it intentionally or not, whether we want to be or not, we allow it in our lives. And he's saying godly sorrow, it brings a clearing of yourself, a desire to be empty of all wickedness and filth. To make empty. I believe this has two truths in here. First, that we are wanting to get ourselves completely pure. 
whatever that would take. Emptying ourselves of our desires. Emptying ourselves of hidden sin. Emptying ourselves of things that we've kept hidden in in secret in our lives. You can't have sorrow in hidden sin. Because you have to be emptied in order to have sorrow. A clearing of yourself. And he says here, we need godly sorrow. It brings about a clearing of yourselves. Not only a clearing of yourselves as far as getting yourself pure, but also a clearing of your wants and desires and saying, God, you have control. Allowing Him to take, uh, take the, 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 and give you direction in your lives. Far too often, even after we've sinned, we let something creep in there. Even after we've known that we are wrong and we are sorry about something, we allow a little bit of justification. We allow a little bit of excuse. I did that because of this, or I did that. And we may even go to somebody and ask for forgiveness, or go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. But in the back of our minds, we hold on to a, a, a little, little nugget, a little lie, or a little misconception that we've allowed ourselves to believe of why we did that thing. Kind of making ourselves feel better about what we've done. That's worldly sorrow. Giving yourself away out and make yourself not feel so bad about the sinful flesh that we really are. We need a clearing of ourselves. The next thing that he says here is indignation. He says godly sorrow brings about indignation. It literally means to get angry. And we know that there is such a thing as righteous indignation, is there not? It's taught in the word of God. And while he's not saying that you should be angry at yourself, because that's the work of the devil, wanting you to hate you because of some sin that you've done, saying what godly sorrow brings about is indignation. Hatred. Hatred for what sin is. Anger about the hurt that it brings. When's the last time we had indignation over our sin? Another message that I've been working on for quite some time is a message about Achan. You know what? That guy caused a lot of problems. And I bet there were a lot of people that were angry at him. But a lot more often than not, we're angry when people sin, angry at other people when they sin, angry at ourselves when we sin, rather than being angry about the sin. We're angry that we failed. It's so stupid. Why did I do this? Can't believe it. How did I give in to that dumb temptation? First of all, no temptation is dumb. The devil's got it down to a perfect science. It's not a mistake. He knows exactly where your weakness is. It's not by chance that you fell into sin. You fell into sin because you exposed yourself uh, in a bad situation or he presented a perfect, a perfect little way for you to go. 
So there's no such thing as that. What there is, though, is we should get a little bit more angry about, about sin, about that uh, it exists and that we uh, sometimes allow it in our lives and how hurtful and destructive it is. And that's one thing about sin is it doesn't just hurt you. It hurts the people that are around you. And when you look at your sin, don't look at it as though it's just something that you can keep concealed and it not have a poisonous effect to those that are around you because you, you can look at Achan and you can look at David and you can look at any man who publicly sinned in the Bible and see uh, how it cost him and those around him dearly. Far too often we kick ourselves and we kick other people, but we don't ever get angry about the sin. We had a little bit more indignation towards the fact that we do sin and that it exists. Hatred for it. That's what sorrow leads us to. It leads us to a point where we hate it, we hate it, we hate it. And when you hate something, you tend to avoid it. Amen. That's good. Yeah. When you hate it, you don't want to be around it. And so hanging out with friends who are not saved or are doing things that are wrong just grits you the wrong way because you hate being around the sin. Not the person. This is a principle that the liberal humanistic mind cannot understand, that you can hate sin and still love people because that's what we're supposed to do. Love people and hate sin. But we do as much as we want to say, oh, I love the sinner and hate the sin. We do it until it's personal. Till somebody do, does something to us or around us, then we start to hate on them. Or we hate on ourselves. How many times have you beat yourself silly because of something you've done? That's not a response of sorrow, of godly sorrow anyway. Kicking yourself, making the cross of Jesus Christ to no avail, did he not cover all of our sin? In the blood of Jesus Christ, it covers all of our sin. If we confess and, and forsake our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, but far too often we do something wrong and we just start kicking and hating and getting angry. So sick of this. I've done it to me. And I've been upset at other people because of something they've done. But it goes to show that we don't have the sorrow in our lives that we should have. Godly sorrow brings indignation for sin. Do you hate it? I don't think we hate it enough. I believe it's one of those things we could always hate more. I believe as we grow in our Christian lives and as we experience sorrow more and more, we will learn to hate sin stronger and stronger and stronger. The next thing, number four, he says, what, what indignation, yea, what fear? Kind of ties in with indignation, but it is something a little bit different. What's fear? Well, first of all, fear is an emotion, isn't it? It is. Fear is an emotion. It's something that you feel. And that feeling comes as a result of a belief. This morning I... Woke up with the kids earlier, and we were getting out getting an early start this morning, and I put my son Lincoln into his car seat, and it was still dark outside. And, and, and he was still real groggy, it was early, and, and he really wasn't aware of his surroundings. But when I kind of dropped him in his car seat, he woke up. And uh, no, it wasn't quite so dramatic. But when I placed him in the car seat, uh, it was a little chilly. And, uh, and all of a sudden, he kind of perked up, and he became aware of his surroundings. He's like, Daddy, why is it dark? 
I said, well, because the sun isn't up yet. And he said, are there monsters outside? <laughs> are there monsters outside? I said, no, Lincoln, the sun's going to be up a little bit. No monsters outside. He's like, yes, there are. He said, just little ones, though. <laughs> he had a little bit of a fear, and the fear comes as a, re- a result of a belief, an emotional response to something you believe. There's a ridiculous shows on TV about guys walking through houses, you know, detecting ghosts and all this other uh, rigmarole, and it's just so dumb. Why is it dumb? Because we don't believe in it. But to the person that believes in it, they're scared to death. And you look at them and you're like, are, are you kidding? This has got to be like put on. There's no way they can genuinely believe this stuff. You look, but there are people that believe it. Fear is an emotional response to something you believe. But it's not just a res- an emotional response. It's an emotional response as a result of belief that something is dangerous. Because if it's not dangerous, after all, what's to be afraid of? So in order to have fear as an emotional response, you've got to believe that something is dangerous. And what happens to the church of Corinth here, he says, when you have godly sorrow, what happens in your life is it produces a fear in you. We are not given the spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. The fear is not a fear of living or a fear of life. It's an understanding of the danger of sin. (laughs) And again... I'm studying this thing and the Lord just he's smacking me all over the place because I know I don't hate sin the way that I should. And then I turn around the very next thing and he's trying to show me how dangerous it is. How many ruined homes? How many men innocently, innocently got onto the internet to look something up that was perfectly clean and wound up in immorality? How many women responded to a a Facebook or a social media message from, uh, from a, a, a somebody from their youth and wound up in an illicit affair. It happens all the time, and they're just two really uh, small examples of how dangerous sin is. In the state of Ohio, we have an epidemic of addiction going on with heroin. You know why the epidemic is happening? Because you only have to do it a couple times before you're hooked. People don't understand the danger of it. And so they go and they take a couple snorts of a drug and all of a sudden they're dependent upon it. If we understood sin the same way that we understood drugs and understood the danger and had a little bit more fear of what it could do and how it destroys, how it could rip apart our homes and how it could rip apart a church and how it could rip apart our children's lives or our spouse's life. If we had a little bit more fear of of the danger of sin, it would cause us to respond differently to it. But we don't have godly sorrow about our sin. Because we don't have the sorrow, we don't have the fear. So we go home and we expose ourselves to it without any sorrow in our lives for what we just saw. We're teaching our children, we're teaching our kids about what's right and wrong. One of the first things that kids pick up on is music. So when we're watching TV or we're doing something, we'll say, that's bad music. We'll teach them to hit the mute button. Even if we're not in the room, they know how to hit the mute button so they can turn it off. But we'll be out in the store, and something will come on the radio, 
And they'll be like, that's bad music. <laughs> Just like that. Same volume level, too. And you know what? I've caught myself in embarrassment before. Kind of in a way. One time we were at a grocery store and I was with Kaylin. She was in the grocery cart and I was on the phone with Liz asking her about something, you know, getting directions about what I was supposed to pick up. And, um, and, and so I'm looking at the aisle and all of a sudden I hear, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And I turn over to Kaylin. I'm like, hang on a second. She's like, Daddy. I was like, what is it? She said, that man has woman's hair. <laughs> and I was like, And I look over and see a man with long dreadlocks down past his shoulders. And he, she understood that long hair was for, for ladies. And, she, and, and, and I, I was full-blown, red, embarrassed. I'm like, all right, let's go over to this next aisle, you know. We don't need anything there, but we're going to make a lap. Why? My child doesn't necessarily understand the danger of sin. They just understand what's right and what's wrong, what they're being taught. We don't understand a lot of times the danger of sin. We know what's right and wrong. We know what we've been taught, but we just kind of observe it the way that my child observes right and wrong and move on with life. To my child, it is she is totally oblivious of what she just said. She knows what she's been taught, and she says, hey, he's got woman's hair, and she could care less. Move on. And as much as we would... Not one to admit it, our responses are very similar. It's acknowledged in maybe a very subconscious kind of way, and then we move on. When I was growing up, my parents had very strict rules about what we could watch. Incredibly strict rules. And somebody would come talk to me about a video. I remember this just like yesterday. I remember one specific instance. Somebody was telling me about a movie they just saw. And they're like, oh, it's so good. And it, it, my, my first question to them was not about the storyline, not about the plot. It was about, is there, any, is there any cuss words in it? Was there any bad scenes in it? Why? Because I knew what the rules were and I knew what my parents would let go on in our house and not let go on in our house. And I knew if there was a language in it that even if it was the greatest movie ever told, I would not be allowed to watch that in my house. My parents would not let us put that on the TV. Why? Because I believe my parents, although they were flesh just like any one of us and, and, and although they failed in many areas, they understood to a, a certain degree that me as a child did not understand the danger of sin. They had a fear about it and they wanted to protect and they wanted to guard. But far too often today, we don't have the same kind of understanding of the danger of sin. And so we sit there and we listen to it and although they just said, oh my God, in a very profa uh, profane way, to us, that's just kind of, that's what's on TV and that's what we expose ourselves to consistently. And it means absolutely nothing to us because we don't grasp we don't understand completely we don't have the fear of sin that comes as a result of godly sorrow in our lives number six or number five the next thing we see is vehement desire vehement desire vehement is to be very passionate about something 
I mentioned earlier that a lot of times we'll beat ourselves up with our sins. That is not the response that we should have towards sin. Sin, when responded to with godly sorrow, is actually a springboard that should propel us forward in our Christian life, not backwards. But far too often we do something wrong and it holds us right where we're at. Or even in some case pushes us backwards because we don't have godly sorrow to it. And so we fall into sin and we do something and we beat ourselves up and we have a lot of worldly sorrow and we know we did wrong and maybe we, uh, we want forgiveness and we want restoration, but we don't desire enough to move forward from it. We let our passion consume us about how much we failed and how weak and pathetic we are and it keeps us from ever moving forward sin should be a springboard it should push you forward and when coupled with godly godly sorrow that's exactly what happens in our life with sin it pushes us forward can you identify times in your life where you've done something wrong and have wound up a better christian because of it that's the result of godly sorrow I can identify it both ways in my life. Times where it pushed me backwards and times where it moved me forward. And now that I've learned this, I know that it's because I didn't have godly sorrow. Because if I had godly sorrow, I would have been a stronger Christian as a result of that sin, not a weaker one. Vehement desire. Number six. He says there, vehement desire, yea, what zeal. What zeal? Do you know what zeal is? Zeal is to have a temper. A sincere temper. I didn't know that. I, I, I always interpreted zeal with just kind of like an excitement or an energy. Being zealous. But it's actually the definition of it is an earnest temper. A sincere temper. And when I looked at this... This, and doing this study and looked up the dictionary, I said, wait a second. Sin is supposed to produce a temper in me? What is a temper? It's a reaction, is it not? Redheads are famous for them. <laughs> it's a reaction to something that irritates you. And whereas we definitely shouldn't respond in anger or in sin to sin... The zeal here has to be a positive thing because it's a result of godly sorrow. And so as far as I can tell, having zeal as a part of godly sorrow means that you react in a very visible and vocal way, just like a temper. You don't care who's around, you care what happened, you lose your temper, you become oblivious to everything around you and your surroundings and people you might hurt or people you might offend. You say things that's just the way they are. They come to your mind and they come out. You know what should happen as a result of sin in our lives? Godly sorrow. And you know what comes as a result of godly sorrow? Zeal. And the result of zeal is that we speak up and we speak out. We become vocal and verbal about what sin is and how destructive it is and how we need to avoid it. We don't worry about political correctness. We don't worry about the crowd that's around us. We don't worry about feelings necessarily being hurt. We just want to speak the truth and we want to speak the truth in love because we know what we have just gone through because of our sin. And so it produced godly sorrow and the godly sorrow produced a zeal. 
I think we need more godly sorrow in our churches today because there's not a lot of zeal in our churches today. We worry a lot about what people around us may think or how they're concerned. A lot of times we only have zeal maybe when somebody else is around doing the talking. A lot of times that's the kind of zeal we have in our churches. If somebody else is around, it's so easy. If I'm out with Nate and we're soul winning out a door and we're knocking and I'm saying, talking to a Jehovah's Witness or talking whatever and telling them they're wrong, that you're, what you're believing is wrong, you know, it might be easier for, for Nate to chime in because he's in good company. It's like, you know, going to a fight with a buddy. Feel better because somebody's got your back, right? That's the truth. A lot of times our zeal is only there when we have somebody else. When we can rely on somebody else's strength or somebody else's spirituality or maybe somebody else's godly sorrow because we don't have it in our own lives. And they get okay, they catch fire. And they start producing zeal because of the godly sorrow. And when we're around them, we're like, yeah, that's right, sick them. But then when we're by ourselves and sin is around, it's kind of like, how quickly can we get away without being noticed how quickly can we not be observed how can I get out of this situation without compromising my Christianity but without making a fool of myself the reason that evil prevails is because good, good men do nothing the reason good men do nothing is because they don't have godly sorrow in their lives they're just that they're good they're not godly When good men become godly, it produces godly sorrow. When you've got godly sorrow, you speak up. You have zeal. A temper. A sincere temper. I thought that was interesting. Number seven. The last one. I'm sorry, I said earlier. Number seven. What revenge. I like this. I like the sound of it anyway. Now, we know that vengeance is the Lord. But revenge, by definition, is an act of inflicting hurt or harm upon someone for an injury or wrong suffered at their hands. And so when I have godly sorrow, I want revenge. Because of the wrong inflicted by whose hand? The devil. Is that not the ultimate wrong upon all human man, uh, humankind? Yes, amen. The temptation and the fall in the Garden of Eden? It is. And so godly sorrow produces in me. You know, it's funny how almost everything points back to this, where we're going, revenge. If, if, if the devil's main goal in this earth is try to keep people out of heaven, you know what's going to hurt him the most? Keeping people out of hell. You want revenge? Be a witness. Godly sorrow produces stronger soul winners. People that are willing to speak up that are willing to share the gospel. doesn't matter about embarrassment. doesn't matter about personal pride. doesn't matter what people think of them. I just want revenge. And the best way that I can hurt the one who's just hurt me because of sin is by being a witness. Godly sorrow produces carefulness, a clearing of yourselves, indignation, fear, vehement desire, zeal, revenge. I want you to notice one last verse here. It says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for, for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto all. Paul, he kind of wraps this up and says, hey, I know I was hard on you, and I know I wrote some things that were hard to hear, and even he addresses here specifically that incest 
that sin. He says, I didn't write unto you because of him that was the offender or because of him that was the offendee. That's not why I wrote unto you. He said, I wrote unto you the way that I did that our care for you in the sight of God may appear unto all. Or, I'm, I'm sorry, might appear unto you. He's saying the reason I wrote all these things that were so hard for you to hear is because I care for you in the deepest kind of way. And I'm not doing it just so that you can see I care for you because I've been given a greater responsibility as your pastor. This is Paul speaking. I've been given the responsibility as your under-shepherd. And more importantly, whether you think I'm doing a good job or not, the most important thing to me is that God knows that I'm doing a good job in caring for his children. And Paul says, hey, I've given you some tough instruction. I'm glad it produced godly sorrow. The reason I gave you that tough instruction is because I love you. And I just wanted to close with a reminder this evening about our pastor. He wants in his own life and in our lives to produce godly sorrow because it produces all these many fruits. Really, it makes a church what it should be. If you look through those things and you start lining them up with what we're supposed to be as Christians, it's right there. The reason he wants those things is because he has to answer to God for how he's caring for this flock. So it may not seem like it's love all the time, but it is. No matter what he's preaching or teaching on, no matter how he says it or how hard it comes across, it is. And remember that he's got to answer to God for how it comes across and how he takes care of the flock. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us.